please turn in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 16. And I'm going to read just one verse, verse 6. By loving kindness and truth, iniquity is atoned for. And by the fear of the Lord, one keeps away from evil. Well, let's once again seek God's face and his blessing upon the preaching of his word this evening. Let's pray. Oh, our Lord, how thankful we are that we can sing your praises and confess that you are our all and all, our strength in weakness, our relief in pain. We need you, dear Lord. We need your Holy Spirit to give us help, preacher and hearer. And since you, Lord Jesus, have died and purchased for us every spiritual blessing, come and give to your people the things you have died, that we might receive and benefit from them. And we desire that hearing the word of God, we may obey it, that we may trust you, and we may glorify you. So please help us, our Father. We are keenly aware of our weakness, and we have come now in prayer, not depending on anything but your sovereign grace. Help us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Back in 2012, a young preacher entitled the sermon on this text, The Gospel According to Solomon. It's a good title for this text, and I would be tempted to borrow it if I were preaching on the whole text, which I am not. That preacher, by the way, was our pastor, Shazad Khan. The text is particularly relevant for our times. The world of COVID-19, that's what I usually call it. We're in the world of COVID, the universe of COVID. We have been reminded that these are times of trial. Pastor Smith reminded us of that. We have been exhorted to avoid sin. Pastor Chansky exhorted us in that regard. These realities and our vital duty make Proverbs 16.6b especially relevant. Last week, I did not preach here, but I preached in North Bergen. I preached on the A verse to our sister church there. And uh, uh, this evening, I'm going to preach on the second half of the verse, by the fear of the Lord, one keeps away from evil. In Proverbs, this book, Solomon teaches his readers by poetic parallelism. It's not like uh, our poetry, Mary had a little lamb, its fleece was white as snow, and everywhere that Mary went, the lamb was sure to go. That's not the kind of poetry that Solomon wrote 
Sometimes he would write two parallel lines that say the same thing in different words. If you look down the page at verse 20, you'll see that he who gives attention to the word will f- shall find good, and blessed is he who trusts in the Lord. That's saying the same thing in slightly different terms. Many proverbs are like that. Sometimes Solomon uses two lines that form a contrast. The very familiar words of Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the, the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Uh, these are contrasting lines saying the opposite things. That's very common in Solomon's Proverbs. In chapter 16, in this section, there is a concentration of lines in which the second line of the statement takes the first line and develops it further, just like in verse 5. Notice, there's a statement in verse 5, and Solomon takes it further in 5b. Everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Now, he doesn't just say that in different language. He takes it a step further. Assuredly, he will not be unpunished. Well, that's the kind of poetic parallelism that Solomon uses in our verse. By loving kindness and truth, iniquity is atoned for, and by the fear of the Lord, one keeps away from evil. The, The first step in getting to the intended truth of a proverb like verse 6, is to find the connection between these two lines. And there is a very close connection between the two lines. The first step to understanding and benefiting is to find the common theme. Specifically, the first part, the first line, tells us how the liabilities of committed sins must be dealt with. Once sin has been committed, how can it be dealt with? And so it's about our sin and God's grace. And the second half of the line, likewise, is of the same theme. The first line tells us that God forgives sin. Only God can do it. Solomon tells us, God through Solomon tells us that it is he alone in his attributes of loving kindness and truth that is able to deal with sins committed. They are only forgiven by God. The Pharisees got one thing right when they saw Jesus ministering to people and he would say, your sins are forgiven. They would say, only God can forgive sin. Who can forgive sins? Who is this man who even forgives sins? Well, uh, the problem is they didn't realize that the, the one they were speaking about was indeed the Son of God. Well, that's what the first half of the uh, proverb tells us. God alone forgives sins. But then Solomon tells us that there is a similar principle in the whole matter of dealing with sins. I'm not going to say much more about the first line. We're going to deal with the second line primarily this evening. The second line tells us how men, women, boys, and girls are being are kept from being dragged down into sin by the fear of the Lord 
one keeps away from evil. So in both halves of the, of the proverb, you have the subject of sin and how it's dealt with. One, how, do you, how are the sins committed by men dealt with? And the second, how in the world can we keep from being dragged down by sin? Well, the uh, declaration of God by Solomon is that that is accomplished by the fear of the Lord. Now, this is important because there is another vital reality behind the part of the verse that we're concentrating on this evening. It is the truth that sin and Satan do not stop pursuing the believer once he has come to God and received from God forgiveness of sin. Sin will seek to reassert itself again and again. Satan is determined to ruin as many people, as many souls as he can. He is that roaring lion seeking whom he was devoured, whom he will devour, as we were reminded this morning. And if Satan cannot bring believers in Jesus Christ to the cursed abyss with him, he will seek to hinder our service to God in this world. And he does that by trying to drag us down into sin. Well, how? How can believers be kept from being mastered by sin again? How can Satan's aims be defeated? How can we glorify God in this world where there is so much sin and our hearts are like tinder? How do we keep from being dragged back down into sin? Well, it is by the fear of God. The fear of God is like a vaccine for COVID-19. Medical companies are working very hard to produce a vaccine for COVID so that we can all be inoculated and we won't be subject to that disease. And already somebody has claimed that they have a vaccine. If it were announced on a reputable news source that there is an effective vaccine for COVID-19, people would ask three questions. Three questions. And they would ask them in different order. Depending on who you are and what your view of these matters is, you would ask these questions in a different order. I'm going to take them in specific order. And hopefully you'll uh, see why I do this. Three questions. Question number one. Might not be your first question, but it's going to be someone's first question. Where can I get it? It, It's like hand sanitizer at the beginning of COVID world, right? The question was, where can I get some effective hand sanitizer? And uh, for some people, it was, where can I get some toilet paper, right? Because it was hard to get. Well, that's that's a question some people are going to ask, and some people are going to ask it first. Second question, what is this vaccine? What is it that I'm looking for? And question number three, how does it work? Now, for some of you, question number three is the first question. How does this vaccine work? What's in it might be your first question. If you have other medications that you take and you're asking yourself the question, well, how is it going to affect other things? But these three questions are going to be asked by most people. And I'm going to ask and answer the questions in a particular order 
I'll try to make it clear why I do. First of all, where can I get it? If it is a good vaccine and if, if it is effective, I'm asking myself, where can I get it? And when we think about the fear of God, since the fear of God is so important because God marks it out as the effective remedy for sin's encroachments upon us, where can I get the fear of the Lord? Well, the first part of the verse gives us an important clue. Because the first part of the verse tells us that God forgives sins. God is the only one who can forgive sins. And God does forgive sins. Now, here's, here's my point. Would it make sense to you? Would it make sense that God alone forgives sin, and then the fear of God comes from someplace else? Are your sins forgiven by God, and then you're on your own from there on out? To nurture the fear of God? Now you have to. You have to exercise the fear of God and you have to work on the fear of God. That's all true. But is God going to leave you alone entirely in that? In having the effective fear of God? Well, I hope that your answer is like mine. Well, no, of course God's not going to leave us to our own resources once he has forgiven us our sins. I'm greatly indebted to John Owen in his exposition of Psalm 130. I've been reading it for my own personal edification along with my Bible reading and whenever else I get a chance, among other things I have to read. But John Owen, in his exposition of Psalm 130, has brought a text to my attention which I, I do not recall ever associating with the subject of the fear of God. And this is what John Owen says. I put it in my own words. The fear of God is the grace which God has promised to give to his people so that they will be kept from soul-destroying sins. The fear of God is the grace which God has promised to give his people so that they will be kept from soul-destroying sins. Please turn to Jeremiah 32. Jeremiah 32. It's a a little bit embarrassing to have to stand up and say, I've read my Bible many times. I've been a Christian for over 50 years, and I miss this. But I thank God for the ministry of Dr. Owen and what he has opened up here. I'm going to start reading in verse 38, and you'll recognize right away that we are in the realm of God's new covenant grace. Because here is the theme, which is repeated again and again, When God talks about what he's going to do for his people in the new covenant. They shall be my people. And I will be their God. And I will give them one heart and one way. That they may fear me always. For their own good. And for the good of their children after them. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them. That I will not turn away from them. To do them good. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts. So that they will not turn away from me. Right at the very beginning when Adam sinned. And the human race was plunged into sin. God made a statement 
of his sovereignty in salvation. And he said, I will put enmity between the, you and the woman and between her seed and your seed. And that is the promise of God's sovereign grace given to his people. And here it is put in a very specific, very specific terms. God says, I'm, I'm going to do something. My people can't do it by themselves. And you might think today, well, I, I, surely I can fear God. Surely I can teach myself. I can, I can watch other Christians. I can read books. I can listen to sermons. But this text is telling us that God does this. God has promised to do it. God is absolutely sovereign in the bestowal of new covenant grace. And I thought to myself, actually, Pastor Carlson and I were talking about this uh, not long ago. And I, I said to Pastor Carlson, what I would, would be really nice is to have a verse in Proverbs that said this. Because then I'd have Proverbs 16, 6b, and then I'd have another uh, verse. And the verse in Proverbs is actually Proverbs chapter 2. Proverbs chapter 2. And again, I want to smack myself upside the head. Why didn't I see it before? Well, here it is. Notice Proverbs chapter 2, starting in verse 1. My son, if you will receive my sayings and treasure my commandments within you, make your ear attentive to wisdom. You know what wisdom is, don't you? You know what wisdom is. It's the fear of the Lord, right? Make your ear attentive to wisdom. Incline your heart to understanding. For if you cry for discernment, lift your voice for understanding. If you seek her as silver, that's what you need to do. Search for her as for hidden treasures. That's what you need to do. Then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. And you might say, well, see there, Mr. Duano, that's what it says, that you, you seek for it and you search for it, you'll find it. Uh-uh. Ah, look at the next verse. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. We need to pray for it. We need to cry for it. We need to seek it. Independence on God who alone gives it. This is the grace of the new covenant. Even though Jeremiah 32 is that Old Testament promise, it's still new covenant grace. And you will find this, these truths in that repository of saving grace and worship in the Psalms. Turn, please, to Psalm 19. The more I think about this theme, the more I find it. I hope you will, too. And that you will draw the right lessons from it. Proverb, I'm sorry, Psalm 19 that celebration of the works of God in the creation and in special revelation. As the psalmist David turns to God's work in the soul, this is what he says in verse 12. Who can discern his errors? Where's the man? Where's the woman? Where's the boy? Where's the girl who can understand the depths of his sinful heart? Where's that person? 
Where's the person who can understand all the inner workings of sin, that native depravity we have inherited from our first father? Where's the person who can figure out all the windings of sin? Well, what David is asking is one of those obvious questions to which the answer is very clear. No one. Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. He says, I don't want to be found guilty of those kinds of things that I can't see, but you can't see them. Then he says in verse 13, also keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I shall be blameless. I shall be acquitted of great transgression. You see, that's, that's, David is praying about the very things which God has promised to do for his believing people. He knows he's vulnerable. He knows he can't avoid presumptuous sins by his own power. But God can do it. And that's what David prays for. Well, we could go more and more. I remember talking to uh, a man, Dr. Cornelius Van Til, on the phone. He was talking about his apologetics, and I asked him, Dr. Van Til, where do you see that in the Bible? He said to me, I see it everywhere. It was a good answer. Knowing Dr. Van Til to some degree, that was true. Where do you find this? Where do you see this in your New Testament in particular? Why? I see it everywhere. I see it everywhere. Turn to John chapter 8. Just a little bit more on where it comes from. My math teacher taught me two, two points make a straight line, and a third confirms it. And so it's good to have some confirmation in John chapter 8, verses 31 to 36. Jesus is speaking to the Jews who had some inclination to credit his word as true. And he says, therefore, to those Jews who had believed him, not truly, but in their own thoughts. He said, if you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And they don't like that answer. They say to Jesus, we are Abraham's offspring and have never been enslaved to anyone. Which was a lie, of course, because they were enslaved at that very point. But they ask, how can you say you shall become free? And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. And the slave does not remain in the house forever. That's that seven-year rule for Jewish slaves, right? After seven years, you are set free, and you no longer remain in the house under most circumstances. However, Jesus goes on to say, there is a way in which you can be free. But if the Son shall make you free, you shall be free Indeed, there's Jesus' statement that the Son can make you free from that enslavement to sin, which would destroy you. Well, there's Romans chapter 6 and Romans chapter 7. Uh, there's a 1 John 3, 9. Just please look at 1 John 3, 9 very quickly with me. Where John 
says no one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him. And he cannot sin because he is born of God. Again, it's not a, a promise of absolute freedom from sin, but it is a promise that soul-destroying sin shall not rule over you. It's not sinless perfection. And I'd like to add, not yet. Because the state of sinless perfection is coming. It's going to be ours. And that is what David says in Psalm 130. God will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. It's not... It's, it's not perfection yet. It's not sinless perfection, but it is real grace that keeps from apostasy. I'm going to put my fear in their heart so that they will not turn away from me. I'm not going to turn away from them. They're not going to turn away from me. They're going to fear God. So that's answer to question number one. Question number one, where do I get it? You don't get it from your own resources. You can't. You can't free yourself from sin. If you are an unconverted person today, in one sense it's bad news. In another sense it's wonderful news because God can. God in Jesus Christ can liberate you from your enslavement to sin. But that, let me move on to the second question because time is fleeting. Second question is what is it? We now know where this spiritual vaccination is. What is it? What is it? Uh, You may have heard sermons on the fear of God. I hope you have. Uh, If you've been here a very long time, you have. Uh, Read books uh, and articles about the fear of God. It's an important subject that we need to be reminded of again and again. We need to revisit it again and again. It's a deep subject that cannot be exhausted. So I want to make two recommendations at this point. If you are inclined, you should be, to study the fear of God, let me recommend nine sermons by Pastor Albert N. Martin preached back in 1970 on the fear of God. They are excellent. You'll also find very good help in Professor Murray's, John Murray's book, Principles of Conduct, Chapter 10. It's only 13 pages, and I've, I've read it in one sitting. It's, it's excellent, and you'll find real help there. Hopefully, I'll have an opportunity to quote a little bit for you in a bit. So, what is it? What is it? What is the fear of God? What is, what is that grace that we are told is an effective preventative against sin reasserting its dominion over our lives? The fear of God... I'm going to be, I hope, simple and accurate. The fear of God treats God as God. The fear of God treats God as God. The man who fears God believes what God says about himself in his word and relates to God accordingly. To put it in other words... The man who fears God believes in God, the one true and living God. The fear of God, in one sense, is a synonym for real faith. It treats God according to what God says about himself. So, 
The man who fears God believes that God is the one creator, that he has made from one every nation on the face of the earth. Every person who has ever lived receives their life from Almighty God. The man who fears God believes that God is his governor, that God rules over everything. What a radical truth it is in the COVID world, isn't it? God rules over everything. Over President Trump, over Joe Biden, over Nancy Pelosi, over Governor Cuomo, over all of the mayors and the governors, the uh, medical practitioners, and he rules over your life and mine. He's in total control. We were reminded this morning. So, the man who fears God believes that God is the one creator, that he's the governor, that he's the provider. He gives to all life and breath and all things. God is the sole redeemer of his people, and God is the judge of all men. He believes that God is present everywhere. The fear of God are not eyeglasses. That was one of my statements I had to cross out today. People say it's, it's like a pair of eyeglasses with which you rule the world, see the world, but it's actually, it's, it's something a little bit different. They're eyeballs. They're eyeballs. Because if you don't fear God, you are blind. It's blindness. It's not poor vision if you don't fear God. It's blindness. The fear of God are the eyes by which the believer sees all of reality. He thinks of all of reality. Not only does he treat God as God, but he looks at all of reality in relation to God. That's why the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. It's the ABC. It's the basic of knowledge out of which all knowledge of the world is formed. Look at Proverbs chapter 15. Another text along that line. Last verse of Proverbs 15, 1533. The fear of the Lord is the instruction for wisdom. And before honor comes humility because there is that very close relationship between the fear of God and humility. People who don't feel God, fear God are very proud people. So, until you know God, you don't know anything as you need to know. Once you know God as he's revealed himself, you put all events, all reality into perspective. You understand something about creatures. You understand something about events and experiences. The, the fear of God is a very powerful influence. Now, some people say that the fear of God belongs to the Old Testament. And um, it views God as a God of wrath. And in contrast to that, the New Testament teaches us that God is a God of love. And they think that you, if you have a relationship with God who is love, then you cannot have a relationship of fear. It's an easy way to show how fallacious that is. Well, you can read your Bible, which you should, and believe it. Or you can read just a little bit of Professor John Murray. Let me do that for you. 
This is my chance. At the very beginning, page 229, lest we should think that the religion of the Old Testament is in this respect on a lower level, and that the New Testament rises above that which is represented by the fear of the Lord, we need but scan the New Testament to be relieved of any such misapprehension. And then he goes into the what he regards, and I agree, as the best texts. I'll just read a couple a little bit more. He asks this question, Could anything be more decisive than the words of the apostles? Having these promises, beloved... Let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness and the fear of God. That's 2 Corinthians 7.1. And you realize what Paul is saying. You want to deal with your sins? You want to be kept from sin? You want to be a holy man or woman, boy or girl? That is done by the grace of God in the fear of God. You perfect holiness in the fear of God. And then... Professor Murray goes on to a text we heard very recently, Colossians 3.22, that slaves are to, uh, to, to do their work in fearing the Lord. Then we have the commands of uh, Peter in 1 Peter 2.17, love all men, honor all men, love the brotherhood, brotherhood, fear God, honor the king, and nothing could be more significant than that the fear of the Lord should be coupled with the comfort of the Holy Spirit as the characteristic of the New Testament church, Acts 9.31. And here is the crown of it. As Professor Murray explains, we may not forget that of him who is the shoot out of the stock of Jesse and the branch out of his roots, who judges the poor with righteousness and discerns with equity for the meek of the earth, the girdle whose waist is righteousness and whose loins, the girdle is faithfulness. Of him it is said, And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Isaiah 11, 2 and 3. If he who was holy, harmless, undefiled, and separate from sinners was endued with the spirit of the fear of the Lord, how can thought or feeling, how can... Uh, thought or feeling that is not conditioned by, the, by God's fear have any kinship with him who is the captain of our salvation and who has given us an example that we should follow his steps. The Lord Jesus was marked by the fear of God and we are his disciples, his followers. So, some people might say that the fear of God is not New Covenant, but it is, as Professor Murray has so ably shown. The love and admiration of God is actually an important element of the fear of God. You turn over to Psalm 34, Psalm 34, and you see it there as well. David is teaching his people and teaching his children the fear of God. 
He puts it in this way in Psalm 34, 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. And think that you're the person who David is addressing. And you really believe what David is saying. And you want to be that kind of person that David is. And that David recommends. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Who's not going to love a God like that? It's going to be adoration and love and awe. And listen as he goes on to say, Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for to those who fear him there is no lack. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. Well, this makes sense. I hope it does in your mind as well. If you come to know God as he declares himself to be, you must admire him and delight in him even when you are awed by him. And that's the only proper posture to come before God, to be awed by God as Isaiah was, as John was, to be awed by God. There's a wonderful hymn in our Trinity hymnal, hymn number 31. My God, how wonderful thou art. Thy majesty, how bright, how beautiful thy mercy seat in depths of burning light. How dread are thine eternal years, O everlasting Lord, by holy angels day and night incessantly endured. Oh, how I fear thee, living God, with deepest, tenderest fears, and worship thee with trembling hope, and penitential tears. Yet, I may love thee too, O Lord. Almighty as thou art, for thou hast stooped to ask of me the love of my poor heart. You see, that brings together so wonderfully those two lines of the relationship of the man who fears God with God. He adores him. He's awed by him. He fears him. And he loves him. Well, I will pass over some of the verses, again, that show just how important the fear of God is. Like Matthew 10, 28. The first Peter passage. First Peter 1, 17 to 19. But there is for you, dear brethren, what it is. What it is. It sees God as he declares himself to be. I know who God is according to the scriptures. And I know that he always sees me because he is everywhere present. And I know that he is my judge. I know that he is my savior. I love and revere him and desire to please him. So, there it is. Number one, the fear of the Lord. Where do, what, where do I get it? It comes from God. It's his grace. Number two, what is it? Well, it is that reverent faith in God as he declares himself to be in the Bible, it believes him, and thus it fears him and loves him. Well, number th- question number three, how does it work? 
How does it work? If there was a COVID uh, vaccine, you'd say, where can I get it? What is it? How does it work? And, there's a, and, and that question is another question, right? Because how do I know it's working? See, how does it work? Because when the doctor gives me the shot, how do I know that it's really working? Well, in one sense, that's very easy, is it not? The fear of God prevents sin. That's what it does. It prevents soul-destroying sins. God promises that the fear of God is going to be planted in the hearts of his people so that they will not turn away from him, and he will always do them good. Now again, the fear of God does not yet perfect a man in grace. It will one day. But it does make a powerful difference. It is a powerful preventive against sin. And that, again, is what our text declares. By the fear of the Lord, one keeps away from evil. The ungodly, just to impress that a little bit more upon you, the ungodly lack the fear of God. In one sense, you don't need a Bible to tell you that. All you have to do is live with your eyes wide open in this world, this present evil world. Go to your job. Go to your nine to five. Go to your office if you're allowed to go to your office now. Go to your office and see the people and listen to them talk. And you see that they have no fear of God. Look at Psalm 36. We're at Psalm 34, 36, just across the page or so from David again. Transgression speaks to the ungodly within his heart. And why does it speak so effectively to the ungodly? I had, I had a woman tell me today, well, uh, this week, uh, I, I have a vice and I have to have a vice, don't I? I mean, you have to have some vice, don't you? Why does transgression speak to the ungodly within his heart? There is no fear of God before his eyes. For it flatters him in his own eyes concerning the discovery of his iniquity and the hatred of it. That's the problem with our society. And it has been given over to a large extent, has it not? To the absence of the fear of God. Well, by forgiving grace, and this is, how, this is how the fear of God works, it begins with God's forgiving grace. And that's why Solomon puts verse A before 6B. The forgiving grace of God <coughs> creates the fear of God. It humbles men and creates a profound concern for godliness. Please turn over to Psalm 130. Psalm 130. And read with me. Starting in verse 3. He was a psalmist in the depths. He has a, a feeling sense of his sinfulness before God. And so he asks the question, if you, Lord, should mark iniquity, O Lord, who could stand? 
the fear of God has already humbled this man. He doesn't say, well, there are a lot of people I know who are a lot worse than I am, who commit worse sins than I am, but me, I'm not so bad. No, he says, when I look around and when I look within, I ask this unanswerable question. If you, Lord, should mark iniquity, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. Forgiveness first. The forgiving grace of God humbles a man. It humbles him and it creates a profound concern for godliness so that the psalmist goes on. I wait for the Lord. My soul does wait in his word. Do I hope? My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. Indeed, more than the watchman for the morning. And then he exhorts, O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is loving kindness, and with him there is abundant redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. He expects God's grace. It humbles him. It makes him grateful and loving. It creates a profound sense of concern for godliness. This is especially true when we remember that our sins are forgiven because of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's, that's the first part of the verse, right? By, by loving kindness and truth, iniquity is atoned for. It is atoned for by the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we were reminded John says, I write these things to you that you may not sin. But if any man sins, we have an advocate with the Father. Righteous Jesus Christ. It produces that profound concern for godly living. In 2 Corinthians 7.1, we are to be perfecting holiness in the fear of God. You'll see it in 2 Peter chapter 1. Please turn back to 2 Peter chapter 1 for a moment. Here again, Dr. Owen points us back to this particular text. In verse 2, Peter says to the recipients of the letter, Christians, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. He goes on to say of how everything has been provided for us through the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. He has granted, verse 4, precious promises, magnificent promises, so that we might have escaped, that we might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. And now, Peter, without embarrassment, says, you need a full orbed pursuit of godliness. And so he begins to tell us what that looks like. He says, for this very reason, not in order to be forgiven, but since you have been forgiven, since you have received the promises of God, for this very reason, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, your moral excellence, knowledge, in your knowledge, self-control, in your self-control, perseverance, in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. That is a general overview of full-orbed godliness 
You'll find a very good exposition of it in John Brown's First uh, Peter chapter 1, Parting Counsels. But what I want to point you to is this in verse 8 and verse 9. If these qualities are yours and increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind, short-sighted, having forgotten his former purification for sins. What is the reason why some give themselves up to soul-destroying sins, give themselves up to sins which they had one time turned it back on, sought the grace of God for, he says they've forgotten their former purification for sin. And how can that be? How can that be? I ask myself regarding my own sins, how can it be? How can it be that I forget what Jesus Christ did for me? What he went to the cross to do for me? What he went through his life of perfect obedience for me? It's tragic. So we are to be cultivating a full-orbed life of godliness. These graces are the proper fruit of true faith in Jesus Christ. Well, I need to bring this to a conclusion. Where do I get the fear of God? It's God's grace. It comes only from God. Only God can give it. Only God can give it to you. Number two, what is it? Well, it knows God as he declares himself in the word of God and relates to him accordingly. It is faith in God. And how does it work? It humbles a man. It creates a concern for holiness. And it keeps the forgiveness of his sins before him. Let me conclude with a couple of lines of application. So much more that could be said about the fear of God. Be sure, number one, that it is right for you to fear God in the way he tells you in the Bible. Be sure that it is right for you to fear God. You're going to come across the religious currents of our day. And people are going to tell you that you really shouldn't be fearing God. Don't you know, don't you know that verse in 1 John that says perfect love casts out fear? Well... They miss the rest of the verse because fear involves torment. It's a certain kind of fear. And we'll let Pastor Chansky open that up when he comes to it. I'm sure it'll be valuable. Don't let anyone tell you that you shouldn't fear God. If you are a believer in God, if you have been cleansed from your sins, if you have been humbled by the grace of God in Jesus Christ, you ought to fear God. That question in the book of Revelation, who shall not fear you? Secondly, beware of pride. Not only does pride come before a fall, pride distorts your view of yourself. Pride distorts your view of God. 
Pride distorts your view of God's law and of your need to avoid sin. If you look back at Proverbs 3, 7, I think you'll find that there. It's not the only verse, but it's a good verse. Proverbs 3 and verse 7, I read it to you. Solomon says to his sons, Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Why are those things all together in that verse? They belong together. Because the person who is proud in his own eyes will not have the fear of God and will not turn away from evil. Very interesting. Uh, Proverbs 3, 7a is quoted by the Apostle Paul in Romans 12, 16, where he says, Do not be wise in your own estimation. And that is joined in Romans 12 to the fellowship of the brethren. And it belongs there. And so my application number three is this. Be sure to get and maintain a right relationship to the brethren in the church. Be sure to get and maintain a right relation to the brethren in the church. 1 John 1.7 says, If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. We need one another, brethren. If you're a Christian and you're not a member of a Bible-believing church where you have a living relationship to the people of God, you're in great danger. It's unnatural. Together, we're walking in the light. What that does is my brethren can see my sins. My brethren can tell me faithfully my sins. My brethren can help me see myself more realistically. But we have to walk in the light, and we have to walk together, and we need the fellowship of the people of God. And there's nothing like that outside of the church. Number four. We are to look to the Lord Jesus Christ. In looking to the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel truths about him, there is defensive and offensive help in dealing with sin. Looking to the Lord Jesus Christ. I close with a quote from John Owen. I remember when I read it, the impact it had upon me. What an encouragement. He said, Set faith on Christ for the killing of your sin. His blood is the sovereign remedy for your sin-sick soul. Live in this and you will die a conqueror. Well, that was very encouraging to a man who needed much work in the area of mortification and still does. Look to the Lord Jesus Christ who is able To give you a real living fear of God and to maintain it. Let's pray.
our Lord and our God, we bow before you. And we thank you that you, the living God, should care so much for us that you would give us the kind of grace that you have promised. And you have promised it with your own oath. You have promised it. You have sealed it with the blood of your Son that you would do us good by putting your fear in our hearts. We plead, our God, that you would increase our fear of your name so that we would revere you and we would love you and we would turn away from sin and we would glorify you by godly living. We confess, our Father, that it is easy for us to be discouraged with our failures and our weaknesses. But that is why we hope in you. We look to you. And we look for that day when you will remove all of our sins and make us like our Savior, perfect in holiness. Hasten the day. Save sinners. Open the eyes of those who are here who have no answer for their sins. Grant that they may look to the Lord Jesus and be saved. Receive our thanks for your presence as you have promised in Jesus' own name. Amen.